Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I explore how psychedelic experiences might solicit false or maladaptive beliefs. This episode was inspired by an article by McGovern et al. that's in preprint right now called The Power of Insight, How Psychedelics Solicit False Beliefs. It's a fascinating and sobering article and the topic of which is, I think, aligned with our effort here to provide you folks with a balanced perspective on the potential promises and and pitfalls of psychedelic therapy. So hopefully you enjoy the episode uh, and it is thought provoking. If any of you are listening and are looking for good training and education pursuant to becoming a psychedelic therapist, you can check out Numinous's education programs at the link in our show notes, or you can go directly to numinous.com forward slash hour dash training dash selection. And there you can use the code PTF10 for 10% off of selected trainings. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a rating or review in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can subscribe to the show on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to the show and uh, share it. Share the episode with someone you think might benefit from it. Without further ado, here is our episode on the power of psychedelics to potentially elicit false beliefs. Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. I say that in our intro and I, I don't know how else to start these conversations except to say welcome back. How about hi? Hi. <laughs> hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Uh, how you doing, Reed? Pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. I'm off on vacation tomorrow. Exciting. So it's a scramble this week to get ready, but... And I just got back from vacation. Ooh. So I feel relaxed and rejuvenated, ready to hit the ground running. And for today, we're talking about something that I, actually I'm, I mean, I'm really passionate about. I would say I'm passionate about just about everything we talk about here, but mm-hmm. um, this is something I think a lot about as just a human, but also as a psychologist. That is um, the way that human beings construct beliefs, the way our beliefs drive our behaviors, and how beliefs can be influenced by bias and sometimes result in what some might call false beliefs. It's a big part of therapy in general. Uh-huh. And so our decision to talk about this today was prompted a little bit by this cool paper that you shared with me by McGovern et al. Mm-hmm. The Power of Insight, How Psychedelics Solicit False Beliefs. That's quite a intriguing title. Intriguing paper. It's in preprint form. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I agree. I loved, uh, I loved reading it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a few episodes ago, we talked about wanting to make sure that we uh, don't overstate the benefits of psychedelics that we don't we're not too pollyannish about what psychedelic assisted therapy can achieve it's we're still studying this stuff yeah um and so certainly it's possible and this paper does a good job of uh outlining the possibilities and how it happens that a psychedelic experience could solicit a false belief so mm-hmm. let's dive into it it reminds me of uh that stan groff quote that is often shared about uh, psychedelics being for the mind like the telescope is for astronomy or the microscope for biology and how cool it is what we're learning about the mind Mm -hmm. and it just like you said it also brings up the need to balance our enthusiasm with what we're learning the balance it with uh, a view that's grounded in reality Mm -hmm. um both on an individual level during and after our experiences but as a field yeah 
No, agreed. It, it when I think about stuff like this, I want to like retreat back and define terms first. Like, so when we're talking about a belief, what do we mean? Like, what is mm-hmm. meant by a belief? And you could define it in a variety of different ways. Um, you can think of the brain as like a an inference machine. It it makes predictions based on a lot of different things. Some of those are uh, prior experiences with sensory data. Like, if I go and flip on the light, the light switch, the lights turn on. That's generally true. And so I have a belief that when I'm going to hit a light switch, the lights are going to turn on. And if all of a sudden I start flipping on light switches and lights don't turn on, I have new sensory data that I need, that I have to make decisions about. Like, am I going to update my beliefs about the effectiveness of light switches to produce illumination? Um, so that's, I guess, one example of what a belief is. It's an expectation about what might happen based on prior lived experience, but also based on what we've been taught to expect, taught by, Uh um, you know, our conditioning growing up or taught by teachers um, so that we can make inferences based on experiences that we have yet to have. We don't have that sensory data yet. And those higher level predictions, like this prediction machinery that we have uh, is layered in our cortex um, and sensory data, like you said, comes in as we navigate the world and then it travels up lower cortex to higher cortex to where we store the consensus belief, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, um, What we believe cognitively, someone told us what we've experienced, the the weight of experience tends to be stronger than just like the cognitive stuff. Mm -hmm. It's all all important um, kind of background information and diving into this topic. And then we were constantly revising those. But in the context of anxiety or other mental health struggles, um, we can have irrational beliefs, like if I eat this bite of food, it will make me fat, or uh, irrational um, fears about uh, what might happen in the world. Yeah, a belief like um, nobody likes me. That's a fairly declarative statement and fairly general and broad. Um, And these beliefs might be resistant to updating. So we might get a lot of sensory data in the form of compliments or people wanting to be around us. And we might resist that because our beliefs are entrenched. They're uh, Mm -hmm. maybe overly dominated by the cortical, uh, sort of the realm of cortical beliefs like you were described, or um, they're deeper in our nervous systems based on some early experiences with how people liked us. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. It it also ties into this interesting uh, component of psychedelics, um, the noetic quality, like this knowing of something as true without anything else needed. Mm-hmm. And that can be a, a beautiful thing as people emerge from a psychedelic experience, if you like know your worth, something like that. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but there is this question that I think we all have of, um, how do you know what to believe right. coming out of these wild experiences with vivid imagery imagery what's a vision what's a memory mm-hmm. what's uh what's an insight from our higher self and what's a weird thought on a psychedelic yeah it makes me think of um you know we've we've uh, mentioned carhart harris's work a lot uh, on the podcast and his this notion of relaxed beliefs under psychedelics the rebus, rebus yeah. model um it made me think of uh that's that's irrespective of the quality of the data, your beliefs are relaxed. So you could have a relaxed belief brain state and then um, be exposed to 
information or uh, claims or whatever sensory data mm-hmm. that could lead to quote you know so-called false beliefs or unhelpful beliefs. It's it's not. What am I trying to say? It's not like a psychedelic experiences relax your beliefs only in favor of new beliefs that serve you well. It could be it could expose you to the um, vulnerability to adopt either false beliefs or beliefs that don't serve you well. So we see this in people who, you know, they go into a psychedelic experience and they, uh, instead of becoming more humble about their beliefs, by virtue of that noetic quality, they become more confident um, about beliefs that maybe don't serve them. So you see ego inflation Mm -hmm. instead of ego dissolving, for example. Yeah, it's um, this same phenomenon, like anything, can be, used for good or evil, if you will, or can be a net positive impact in life or, or net negative, like you're saying, reinforcing the maladaptive stuff. Um, because there are these other um, phenomena out there, like group think. We're more likely to adopt the beliefs of a group uh, for acceptance and, you know, these evolutionarily wired things that make sense of uh, wanting, needing to belong, uh, be accepted, etc. But we have so many examples through history of that gone awry, and it's it's uh, really interesting to look at the psychedelic experience in this balanced lens of uh, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So we hope to leverage the openness, the um, relaxed beliefs in favor of the good. Yeah. Um, but as you stated, and like this paper outlines, I think it's important for us to be honest about the possibility that, it, it, that those relaxed beliefs could result in the bad. I think we we encounter it a lot being a part of a big mental health organization that uh, offers mental health support to people in their day-to-day lives and before, after, during psychedelic experiences. And uh, we hear probably on a weekly basis about, or more, people who have... Uh, kind of a difficult time after the experience of not being grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a subset of people particularly at risk, but it does help explain that and and shine a light on the wise way to approach these things or the safe way to do it um, to mitigate that risk. Mm-hmm. That's why we talk so much about, you know, preparation and then expert facilitation and the need uh, for support, good support, good support and the value of um, really thoughtful, deliberate integration after a psychedelic experience. It also kind of highlights the need for a community that can call you out Mm. if if you're uh, kind of losing your footing in reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Community that will call you out. It, it, you know, it's hard to talk about this stuff and not think of, uh, like you said, groupthink, but groupthink as it manifests in like a cult yeah. or a, a group that is ideologically united, like a, a religious group or a uh, political group or however human beings like to group themselves. We we want, by virtue of the of confirmation bias and misattribution errors and all that thing, all those things, we, we want to feel comfortable in our beliefs and we want those beliefs affirmed by our group. Um, and we are, as human beings, because of those factors, in, da- uh, in danger of um, sort of just confirming each other's beliefs, even if they're false. If they make us feel comfortable yeah. and safe and, and approved of, um, that can be a slippery slope down to believing some silly things. Yeah, and we naturally avoid the discomfort of saying, hey, Steve, uh, you know, 
I'm concerned about this. Right, right. <laughs> we're having that difficult conversation, just like we were saying, I think in the last episode or many episodes about, you know, we're wired in some ways to avoid discomfort and that's mm -hmm. worth checking because we also know that discomfort is like the big catalyst for change and the place where growth occurs and, yeah. and those difficult conversations in community and therapy, you know, in, uh, in any way can be so helpful. It makes me think of all the, the literature and theories around the phenomenon of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. You know, and we have these two com uh, opposing beliefs in our, or opposing theories or ideas in our mind that we need to reconcile. And we can reconcile that by changing our, our beliefs, our closely held beliefs, so that they are more consistent with this new information. Mm -hmm. Or we can discredit the new information so that we can hold on to the old beliefs. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, if that new information is more valid, uh, more objectively true, the desire to hold on to our old beliefs can be maladaptive. Yeah. And I think, thankfully, psychedelic-induced insight in general is quite positive, mm -hmm. right? Like, like the nature, especially of a classic psychedelic, serotonergic um, psychedelic experience is one of unity, connectedness, nature connectedness, for mm -hmm. example, um, treating each other more kindly, treating the planet more kindly, but that is not always the case. There are examples of where, like you said, with ego inflation, for example, I think it's one of the risks that isn't discussed enough of kind of unchecked, unsupported uh, psychedelic experience, especially frequent deep ones, losing one's ego and flexing it back into place in a way that may not be good for the individual. Yeah. yeah, it's a good point. And it's why I'm I'm generally skeptical of, of psychedelic gurus, people who have psychedelic experiences and then collect a following um ba and the, and what they're and they're declaring something to be objectively truthful, uh come follow me, uh, submit to my will, right? Um and we have examples in the past of how psychedelics have been used in groups like this. I'm thinking of like, you know, horrible examples like Charles Manson or whatever. Um, people, yeah. people back in the day. I've been in psychedelic ceremonies where I can think of one in particular where the facilitators, um, during the journey at some point in the latter half of it, gave a lecture on their view of trauma. Mm. And it was pretty... It was pretty wild. Um, and I know everyone has their viewpoint and perspective. And like in general, we really benefit from having an open dialogue about balanced perspective. But here you have a group of people in a non-ordinary state of consciousness with more openness and susceptibility. And, like, and we can talk about that. Receiving these things like, like you don't, like uh, one thing I remember them saying was you don't talk about your trauma to heal from it. Mm. or something like that. And, um, and who knows what they meant from that and if it's uh, grounded in anything, but, but you can see how just a simple statement like that, um, I mean, we see it in the, in the research too, you can plant a seed of things mm. in the psychedelic experience that um, can be uh, troublesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so to pick up the metaphor of planting a seed, like uh, a psychedelic experience creates this fertile ground for a seed to take root. Yeah. Um, another, another word you could use to describe the noetic quality is obviousness. There's this feeling of like these things that I'm experiencing, these ideas that I'm having are so obvious. It's so obvious that love is all you need, right? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I think of this before? It's, this feels so true and so real. So you can imagine that if, if somebody was malicious or they were just planting a seed that was self-serving or whatever, potentially false, 
that because of the conditions of the, of the psychic soil that a psychedelic experience, you know, uh, proffers, that this potentially harmful belief could take root in a more thorough way than otherwise. Yeah, yeah. With So with all that being said, it, a little uh, tangent that I found find interesting is in the psychedelic history archives, there are these interesting studies from the 60s, 70s on uh, paranormal experiences mm. in psychedelics or telepathy in particular. Like there was one that uh, intrigued me from like 1971, a series of Grateful Dead concerts where um, this is at one like concert house theater in New York in particular, where was it? Um, Capitol Theater in Port Chester. And uh, 2,000 attendees at this concert um, see on the screen at 11.30 p.m., at the beginning of the concert, you are about to participate in an ESP experiment. <laughs> I mean, imagine going to a concert. And I... Uh, it's a little unclear to me if everyone was on LSD. Mm -hmm. Most probably were by default in the era of legal LSD and Grateful Dead concerts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but they surveyed people after and looked at the people like on LSD who were actually sending. So the the experiment was, you know, enjoy the concert, look at the images on the screen. Uh, like there was a song about a bird, images about a bird. And these were images because they're evocative mm -hmm. of emotions. But then the fascinating thing is there were in this experiment, like two to five people across town selected for their like psychic openness or abilities mm -hmm. sleeping. And the goal was to see these images and transmit them to those people who would be interviewed the next day about what their dreams contained. Mm. And so um, in that bird example, uh, seeing imagery of birds, one of the d psychic dreamers, one's in a dream laboratory, one's in her apartment in like New York, and uh, one of them saw like a phoenix or a griffin, like ding, check, like bird. That, that <laughs> uh, is called a success. Someone else saw a snake, nope, or uh, um, a giraffe or something, nope. Mm -hmm. um, but there was uh, from a series of experiments uh, this statistically significant um, finding, and there are all sorts of biases in research too. Right, like it needs replication. Uh, this but, is not definitive proof of you know ESP, but but a fascinating um, phenomenon. It points to the fact that people coming out of psychedelic experiences um, have these noetic. Um, experiences of knowing or truthiness or obviousness. Mm -hmm. There was another study where it was like 30 people coming out of a group psilocybin ex experiment were, were surveyed. Three out of 30 at least had some kind of paranormal telepathy-like experience. Like, I saw that person as a tree. Mm -hmm. And then that person says, no way, I saw myself as a tree. Mm -hmm. Or another person said, that dog barking outside at us in the ceremony, I knew what they were barking about. And it makes sense. You have an intuitive, your intuition is, is uh, finely tuned. Mm -hmm. And the question is what to do with that and the accuracy of that and how to um, approach these things wisely with regard to day-to-day -day life after. Yeah. So the last part, like how to approach these things wisely in day-to-day -day life. Um, that's why we will continue to beat the drum of good integration after a psychedelic mm -hmm. experience. 
Because a lot of my clients who come out of psychedelic experience have these things that we're talking about. A lot of them feel really excited. They feel that the 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 things that they experienced and the insights that they had are very salient, right? These are very mm-hmm. relevant. And I have the solution to all my problems. Like it's not always, you know, that. But uh, it's it's why I, I'm always talking about expectations before going into psychedelic experiences. But then to give yourself time and space before mm-hmm. you make big decisions, before you make big oh, yeah. changes based on these new insights. Yeah, even practically speaking, just like we'll tell someone not to drive the, themselves home after mm-hmm. ketamine or you know a, a dosing session in our studies with mm-hmm. LSD psilocybin, um, we also tell them don't go home and sign contracts. <laughs> and like you said, don't make big life decisions until the dust settles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, don't end or start new complicated yeah, relationships. You, or Yeah, so that's kind of a, a spoiler alert in terms of what to do with this is take in the information, but through that wise-minded filter mm-hmm. uh, and uh, see it for what it is and recognize the possibility that um, we can have uh, vision and experience and insight on a psychedelic um, that is not accurate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, this is was preparing for this episode was making me think about my uh, college education and uh, what I got out of a college education. You know, as, as mm-hmm. somebody with a PhD, I was in college forever. And a lot of it, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it was probably not very useful. But one of the things that I brought out of my college education, I attribute to one of my undergrad professors, Dr. Brent Slife, a psychologist, both a clinician and a, and a theoretical psychologist. And one of the things he taught me early on was the importance of critical thinking. Yeah. And by his definition, critical thinking was to slow down, take a step back and examine the assumptions under the beliefs that you have or the information that you're being exposed to, that you're learning, mm-hmm. certainly in science and certainly in social science. And so um, it, I, I think about this when we, when, we, when we talk about psychedelic experiences, how much more important it is when you come out of a psychedelic experience to do the things you're talking about, to slow down and examine the assumptions behind these new insights that you have. Um, I was going somewhere else with that. What was it? Uh, oh, it was this, the notion of the inner healing intelligence that we talk mm-hmm. a lot about. Yeah. Because one theory that we have as to why psychedelic experiences can be so therapeutic is that they relax these beliefs so that what we believe is present in all people, this tendency toward wholeness, this tendency toward healing, toward um, uh, being your best self-actualized self can take hold and uh, and lead the organism instead mm-hmm. of these s- dysfunctional beliefs. Um, you could think about it uh, from an internal parts perspective. Like we want to give the microphone or the steering, the steering wheel to the capital S self or the core self. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also possible that it isn't the inner healing intelligence that takes the wheel that uh, it perhaps influenced by somebody who doesn't have our best interests at heart or somebody who's a little deluded themselves, um, or for whatever reason, a different part that isn't the core self grabs hold because our, our mm-hmm. protective beliefs or protective parts are so relaxed um, that could lead you down a, a self-defeating or destructive path. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good point. I mean, the, the part that grabs the mic in day-to-day life and even in a psychedelic experience isn't always necessarily 100% by default the higher self. Right. <laughs> yeah, like I've, it takes sometimes, and we see this in deeply ingrained, rigid, um, difficult to treat conditions like like uh, chronic severe 
eating disorder, for example, yeah, it, it's going to take more, more than one session to like start to melt, like or reduce the weight of these very tightly held beliefs. And, you know, coming out of that, you know, especially without the right preparation and the integration support to call it out and, and help look at it, to mirror it, it could be, you know, you could accidentally strengthen something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe I could just read a little paragraph from the paper that I think sums up sums up this challenge well. Um, our focus on false beliefs is not because we believe that psychedelics only solicit incorrect ideas, but because the potential for false beliefs under psychedelics have been somewhat overlooked, just like we're saying. Secondly, if psychedelics do hold potential to change deeply held beliefs, as they are believed to do, and as you and I believe they can do, and we've seen it, and some proportion of these are likely to be false and yet feel insightful are true, there are major consequences to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those consequences, you know, you just think about it for 30 seconds and it would seem obvious, but... Um, it does make me think, and they weren't super explicit about this in the paper, but like, how do we help people avoid adopting false beliefs as a result of psychedelic experiences? There are the things we've talked about already, you know, appropriate expectation setting, preparation for the experience, um, somebody there who can facilitate and guide in a way that is um, constructive and supportive, uh, having a community of people that will not only support you and affirm you, but also uh, call you out on your stuff. It uh, it kind of um, provides some good scientific rationale for what we what we've been feeling um, noetically. <laughs> no, what we've been talking about on here of the need to pair the right kind of therapy mm-hmm. with the healing path, especially after a psychedelic experience, where neuroplasticity windows are open opened up where you're more malleable because well a metaphor i've heard about rebus is that um psychedelics um relax these tightly held beliefs it's kind of like melting metal Mm. like applying heat to metal to our cognitive hierarchy our rigid beliefs so they can be reshaped and uh that really the big key factor question mark is what do we do with that ability? Like, how do we use that for the, the best good? Is like in shaping these beliefs towards adaptive things in line with our intentions and are our intentions the right ones? Right. Yeah, I'll think out loud, uh, so this won't be totally well-constructed, but um, about one way maybe that happens with respect to Rebus. Like, so the hope or the idea is that you're relaxing um, the tightly held beliefs, as you described, that are uh, that are sort of top down in their processing direction, right? I'm going to navigate the world based on these beliefs I already have, and that psychedelics relax that top down direction and instead allow for bottom up learning. So yeah. now, with a psychedelic experience, as you stated, the the window uh, of neuroplasticity is open. I now have an opportunity to update old beliefs based on new lived experience, sensory data, um, where I'm closer to the actual experience than I would be otherwise. Yeah. So maybe we help people have um, self-constructive, self-supporting, um, healthier 
sort of uh, lived experiences so that they can use this new data to update those old dysfunctional beliefs. Mm-hmm. So like I said, that was me thinking out loud. It might, yeah. <laughs> might not make total sense. And, and I think it lines up with what the paper is describing too, where there are these two different kinds of uh, memory and belief uh, formations that happen, like the cortical dependent ones, maybe top down, the hippocampal dependent ones, bottom up sensory inputs. We want to give weight, like psychedelics uh, uh, enhance the the top down ones in a way, like mm. those aha moments, those insights that um, feel like absolute truth and are surrounded with a neuro chemical soup of reinforcing things like dopamine, for example, mm-hmm. um, that we don't want to give that too much weight in the wrong direction. We want to give it weight um, to relax the maladaptive beliefs that are limiting us from living our life. Uh, but one way we can tune into the bottom up sensory input is by somatic approaches, like listening to what the body says, what our emotions say and taking a wise-minded approach to use that data and our rational mind and our our cognitive insights to a middle path forward right yeah Yeah, i think it's why uh, mindfulness-based therapies um, or things like meditation are often paired with psychedelics because it does Mm -hmm. promote a um, a sort of present moment present moment focused body attuned uh, approach to updating beliefs. And yeah. I keep using the phrase slow down for that reason. Cause at least for me, um, that's one of the things that meditation really helps me do is, uh, as I stated before, examine assumptions by slowing down and stepping back. Like I'm having this thought I would, and in the past I would have just taken this thought at face value, but maybe this thought doesn't serve me. Maybe it doesn't reflect reality. Yeah. Uh, that's easier to do in a psychedelic state. It's also easier to do in a meditative state. Yes, a psychedelic state and a meditative state, they both increase the number of insights you're going to have. Um, But that can include this, what we're assuming is a smaller percentage, but of false insights. Um, And it's interesting, there have been some studies on false insights, like uh, Grimmer 2022. They had people read a series of words with... um, similar meaning across them, like monument and uh, things related, but then they'd like monument, tribute, memorial, Mm. um, but then they'd give them an anagram to solve and uh, that was visually similar to a word that they'd been primed with, like, like monument, mem, yeah, like memunomt or something. Mm -hmm. And they might... Like you could reconstruct that and an anagram is just um, words rearranged to be something, letters rearranged to be something else. So that could be rearranged to or solved as monument or momentum. And the result of the study was that people rearrange the words to what they were primed on. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you're, you can really plant seeds in a consciousness that, uh, that, alter the end result of some task or, or study or insight. Yeah. Yeah. It's why I like the way, um, that we generally try to approach intention setting in psychedelic therapy, um, by thinking like, how is it that I want to change? You Mm -hmm. know, um, you're asking the psychedelic experience to, um, 
how do I want to embody a, a new type of quality? Like, let's say, show me how to experience love or help me understand why I keep repeating this particular pattern over and over and over again. So you're taking advantage of that priming effect, hopefully, uh, and leveraging it in favor of your development, as opposed to just saying like, I don't know, uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'll surrender the experience, which isn't bad advice, but yeah, um, it can be technically more helpful to to prime the pump, so to speak. Yeah, prime the pump in a in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, this this ties into the topic of false memory or memory illusions, mm. you could call it. Like there's this, in memory research, this concept of misattribution mm -hmm. that is, uh, that leads to memory distortions. And it happens like by kind of activation of the recollection uh, that might be a, a false one. Like if you, if you were shown a Photoshop convincing picture of you at Disneyland as a kid and saw it over and over and even felt some emotions around that, there's a very good chance that could become a real memory in your memory banks, mm -hmm. right? Like memory is fickle and we know it. Um, and therefore it becomes a, a tricky task to tease out as things come up, like we're talking about, like visions, insights, real memories and, and uh, kind of visionary experiences that might feel like them. Yeah. yeah. One powerful example of this um, was the the satanic panic, like back in the '80s, where there was this mm -hmm. um, this epidemic of people in therapy experiencing recovered memories of being ritualistically abused in satanic cults when they were younger, and uh, it just seemed very, very unlikely that there was this much satanism, <laughs> this much ritualistic yeah. abuse happening. And upon reflection, it was attributed to these therapists that just sort of were doing hypnosis. They were trying to do uh, repressed memory retrieval. And because they sort of expected this to be the case, they were unwittingly uh, priming their clients to recover these memories. And a lot of lives were affected negatively because of this phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. It uh, kind of ties into that that group think phenomenon we mm -hmm. were talking about. Um, and even the, the hype cycle of psychedelics that we were talking about in our psychedelic science recap. Like uh, there's that paper by Griffiths and Yaden about the, the hype cycle and how the news headlines in recent months have been uh, probably skewed a little much towards the positive headlines like mm -hmm. uh, you know psychedelics as a, a magic cure um, and and that's what uh, I think needs to just be balanced with this discussion that we're yeah. having yeah. yeah they are clearly not a magic cure they're clearly not a panacea clearly not a silver bullet they can't be used to to change everything or treat everything and in some cases they make things worse um, it's important. It's important that we pause every once in a while and, and come to terms with that reality. Yeah. And saying that as, as clinicians who work in the space with a lot of enthusiasm mm -hmm. and, uh, gratitude for having these tools, um, because they've helped so many of our clients, but, uh, but yeah, important words of caution for sure, because we as humans, I think the bottom line is we're, we're prone to self-deceive. Like, it's just, it makes sense. You can't see yourselves so clearly with the brain you're 
sitting in yeah. um, with a with a clear unbiased perspective that just doesn't happen we need we need uh, ways of kind of having this mirrored to us we need ways of of looking at ourselves and clearing some of this uh, noise that is such a fascinating thing about humans you know <laughs> that we are so prone for self self deception we're not really um, perfectly rational you know machines in, in fact if 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 there's anything that that dominates our decision making it's it's emotions it's a desire to survive and feel better not to understand and see the reality or the truth the objective truth of things and then of course there's interesting metaphysical debates about whether or not we have <laughs> access to the objective truth at all or whether we're just brains in a vat in some wild simulation mm, that that is a good question should we try and solve that one right now <laughs> I don't know uh, if I have anything else to say about it or any new data maybe yeah. AI will fix it for us but yeah I think the consensus is that that we each see a different reality mm -hmm. right we what we perceive as reality is through the filter of our own eyeballs mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the light traveling in, hitting the rods and cones in the back of our retina and going through our unique optic nerves that are shaped by our DNA and our life experiences and through this like collection of neurons that is uniquely ours from nature and nurture, projecting this image of what we think is reality. Um, you and I could be looking at the same part of this room and seeing it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what the real reality is, right? Yeah, if anything, that what you just said, um is an opportunity to, well, it it's you can base a lot of compassion and empathy yeah. on what you just described. Like it's certainly possible that somebody believes something very different from you because they literally experience the world differently. Um, and if you were in their shoes, if you were exactly that person with their genetics and their prior experiences, you would likely believe the same things. Yeah, it reminds me of, and this is a bit of an aside, but when I started working at Center for Change a number of years ago, an eating disorder treatment center here in Utah, um, my uh, boss and mentor, and Mike Barrett, psychologist, who started the place, he gave me, and like he gave every employee, a copy of this book called The Anatomy of Peace. Mm -hmm. On It's really on self-deception, one of the Arbinger Institute books, but... Um, it was focused on leadership and the ways we self-deceive in seeing each other and seeing other people as the problem and talked about how you could have either a heart at war or a heart at peace and that was that was the root of the self-deception they were talking about which is a a big one if you can shift that and take radical responsibility and have huge empathy for everyone's experience being and reality being so different what, what is the main distinction between the heart of war and the heart of peace? So, um, like, the, the self-deception in this book is about when people look at others as objects rather than humans, like, they take an attitude of helping. They might convince themselves that um, they're doing this to help them, they're making their decisions and seeing themselves as virtuous where the other is a problem, but they're trying to do something to help. And the more often this happens, the more we reinforce a mindset that 
creates this wedge in relationship, like the vulnerability, the shared responsibility isn't there. So in, in order for people to end this kind of self-deception, they've got to accept that everyone does see their own reality. Everyone has their own emotional experience and urge others to, to always question like our own potential self-deceiving beliefs and, uh, and then if we're more open to this in others and help help others do the same, it it shifts into that that seeing other people as a real human with real struggles and seeing from the heart at, at peace more. Mm, mm. Um, you know, I could just um, because I've started down this rabbit hole. Why don't I just read the a few of the principles from Anatomy of Peace? Yeah. See how they land. Um, so every human being is a person with hopes, needs, cares, and fears. Uh, when we regard others' hopes, needs, cares, fears as inferior to or less legitimate than our own, we see them as less than they are, as objects rather than people. That's right. kind of the, the root of it. To see a fellow person as an, an inferior object is to harbor a hard and violent heart toward that person, mm -hmm. heart at war. But to see others as objects then is to do violence to them. It's to strike them with our stony heart. It's pretty pretty harsh wake-up call yeah um but when and when others detect violence in our heart they become defensive they put up walls and see us as objects we put our weapons up mm -hmm. like this happens in couples work all the time right. um violence in one's heart provokes violence in another um and so most occasions of this this violence that using the term pretty broadly are manifestations of a prior conflict in our prior experience of kind of violence in our hearts um, and this perpetuates it so to reduce that we need to kind of get to the heart of it which, which is that problem of uh, the heart at war mm -hmm. yeah. yeah you know it, it, as you were describing those principles it occurred to me that uh, for, for all that we're saying in terms of um, words of caution with psychedelic experiences they do tend to move people toward a heart of peace and away from yeah. the heart of violence. Right. I mean, I'm thinking of, you mentioned it coming up in couples work and I, and, and yes, and I'm also thinking of it being what we're seeing politically in, mm -hmm. in the world, in the West, what we're seeing as a result of, um, sort of, uh, warring ideologies where you're othering the other person, like you were describing, you're seeing them as an object. You know, that person's a Republican, that person's a Democrat, that person's a racist, that person's whatever, right? You can, all these labels yeah. and labels help us objectify other people. Um, and I imagine a utopia where we can have a heart of peace where we're actually seeing people as people with their own motivations, their own priors that dictate their beliefs, right? Yeah. Um, and having compassion instead of developing that hard heart that we then use to strike other people down because yeah. we're afraid. It's kind of uh, just another way of looking at this whole kind of Buddhist or Hindu way of viewing the world and spirituality is that like life as we know it here is uh, um, kind of an illusion. Reality mm -hmm. is an illusion and the illusion is that of separation, mm -hmm. um, not seeing our unity. And as we, you know, I agree with you that psychedelics tend to, um, like other practices do, contemplative practices, um, they tend to uh, bring us back that that sense of connectedness and oneness. Um, 
And this is unique to those kind of medicines. It's not something you, you see on PCP, for mm. example. Mm -hmm. Like, as an example, one that has um, more fearful or paranoid type of uh, non-ordinary experiences. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which again is why we're excited about psychedelics as a tool to help not only people... Um, resolve some of their own intrapsychic issues, but maybe as a tool for changing society, yeah. changing community, the way we orient to each other. There was uh, a case recently reported in the news, this is in uh, kind of popular press, but of someone who had extreme fascist political worldviews and had an MDMA journey mm -hmm. and uh, completely revised those to not um, a fascist extreme view of the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me, I forget the gentleman's name. He, I saw him uh, interviewed on Joe Rogan's podcast a while ago, but he's an African-American gentleman who goes and befriends members of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, wow. And he's, he's credited with like over 200 people that he's been able to get out of the Klan, wow. these white folks, that, because, you know, it's so easy to just see in the case of the Ku Klux Klan, people of color as non-human um, or a danger to them or whatever. But then when they actually meet a person <laughs> mm -hmm. and see that they are a person and that they are human and that they're a human who deserves love and respect, it's amazing how that can update a belief held so yeah. strongly um, by an organization like that. So you can see why people, like we're saying, who've had a profound psychedelic experience um, say an MDMA experience of profound love. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to share that with as many people, and that's well-intended, right? And uh, mm -hmm. I think all we're bringing up here is the, the data, the, um, the kind of expanding body of literature of understanding how the mind works and, and how that works um, most of the time and how sometimes there can be a, a negative outcome and we need to understand the risk factors, the situations where that occurs and how we, you know, how we help the most people and avoid as much harm as possible. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. That's a good way to, to wrap up. Thanks for right. the conversation. Thanks, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. 
The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.